but it's really the story of the teachers, the story of the parents, the story of everything that happened to the kid before before they got into whatever situation it is that they're that you're trying to assess. None of the problems that our society is undergoing right now is are because we don't know enough about geometry. There's no such thing as an idea that can't be subverted by the status quo. It, it, you saw it with standards, you see it with competencies, you see it with performance assessment. Hello and welcome to the Covenant Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Gary Chapin. Gary is the co-author of 126 Falsehoods We Believe About Education. He's been working in education since 2000, first as a teacher, then as a curriculum director, then as Department of Education researcher, and most recently as an advocate and supporter of equity-based practices, such as competency-based learning, performance assessment, adaptive leadership, and collaborative cultures. He's deeply fascinated by questions like, what should kids learn? How do we decide what kids should learn? How do we learn what they learn? How can learning what they learn help them learn more? And also, everything about systems. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Gary, and specifically I'd like to point you to the article that recently came out in Education Reimagined. Uh, the link is in the show notes. What we're exploring here with Gary is this idea of story, the story of learning, the story of the experiences of learning that students go through, moving beyond quantitative measures, moving beyond stories told as numbers, and really bringing in voices from everywhere. This is the idea that the learning experiences of students don't happen in isolation. They're part of context. Other members of the community are part of the stories. Other members of the community have their own stories. And if we build these stories with as many points of view and perspectives as possible, including from the non-human world, then we have a story of learning of these experiences, which is rich, qualitative, of course, sometimes post-qualitative, but really provides a profile that is different. And Gary in this episode really shows that it's about which story we choose to tell and for what purpose. I hope that this episode and the conversation with Gary add to the conversation about assessment, but more importantly, about learning. And as we remember that assessment is a function of learning, it is meant in order to deepen learning and it is not isolated in itself. In the meantime, check out our blog on www.coconut-thinking.design. Uh, we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News, and you can check out a bunch of articles from some great educators there, www.intrepidednews.com. And the Coconut Thinking website is www.coconut-thinking.design. I will leave now space to my conversation with Gary. Hi, Gary. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Uh, I'm particularly excited because you are on the Coconut Thinking podcast, and I have to thank you because I understand you are uh, gravely allergic to coconut, so hopefully this won't be a, a traumatic experience. Um, so we'll start with the questions um, that we would like to ask all our guests, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? So who I am, it's just like you, we could talk an hour for just that frame, but uh, I'm a writer which is the first thing. I mean, of all the things I do, that's the thing that was there at the beginning. I write, I do words, I enjoy words. People, I say things and people are like, why do you talk that way? And I'm like, because it's a good time. And um, so I'm a writer first. Uh, and somewhere all along the way, I became an advocate. And that was probably my mother's doing. Uh, very early on, she was like, you have to be a force for good. And uh, so that stuck. Um, and then, uh, I 
also seem to be somebody who's just fascinated by learning and education and how do we know things and why do we know things and what does it mean to know things? It's, so like thinking about that kind of thing um, is also a good time. And I also play the accordion, which is absolutely central to who I am. Uh, it is one of the joys of my life. It keeps me sane. And um, if you spend any time with me, you're not going to go very far without hearing it. I'll ask the other question that we ask all our guests and take it from there as we springboard. How do you define learning? I feel like there are a couple of ways to approach this. I, it could be, I mean, we could take the dry approach and say it's the taking on of new skills or knowledge, or we could take the holistic approach and say it's the, the your change as a person as you grow. Um, or we could take the experiential approach, which is my favorite, um, which is it's learning is is diving down the rabbit hole and going deeper and deeper and deeper just because you're fascinated and you love it. Um, although I always wonder what the rabbits think. But uh, I feel like there's so many different ways to define learning, um, but defining it as a joy or an expression of freedom is really important, um, especially if those are the experiences we want kids to have. One of the things that you mentioned is you were interested in why we learn. Now, even asking why do we learn has many different potential facets to it, many different reasons, like why we learn in terms of outcomes, in terms of growing as a self, why we learn in terms of the application. What are some of the things that come to your mind when, when you think about why we learn? I do this activity when I'm with teachers, usually the first time I'm with them, if I'm with a room full of teachers, where we explore the... Um, we explore a genuinely great learning experience that they've had in their life. When, it, when is a time when they've just felt completely fulfilled by learning experience, even if it was hard or especially if it was hard, uh, not necessarily related to school. And what I've discovered is that in almost all of those stories, and there have been hundreds now, I've done this with hundreds of teachers, um, in almost all of those stories, this their great learning experiences starts with something along the lines of, well, I decided I wanted to do this. And uh, I say almost because I don't have actually a counterexample, but I'm just assuming that there might be one. Um, so they, they have this experience, this great learning experience that they go on at length about it. And you can see that it fills them up just even talking about it. And it, and it starts with, I decided I wanted to learn this. And um, the point of that exercise is, is that how often do we let kids have that experience to decide that they want to learn something? And how much of uh, school is this hideous compromise with uh, our desires for kids and this fundamental piece of a great learning experience? And uh, so, so a huge part of uh, the conversation these days is engagement um getting kids to basically want to learn um, i just find it to be really kind of starting from a false assumption that if if you coerce attendance then you can expect intrinsic motivation it just feels like an obviously false thing uh, no no adult would stand for it no human would stand for it i force you to come to this building that you don't want to be in and now I want you to learn something because you just, you want to learn it. Um, unless you're learning how to escape, 
I don't see how it's uh, I don't see how that's possible. So the the why learning piece is important because because we're just obsessed with engagement, but we seem to miss the most obvious reasons why a human being would not be engaged in the school system. And there's a couple of directions here on on both counts because the kids are learning what they want when they want. They're just not doing it in the classroom. Or if they are doing it in the classroom, they're doing it because they're not doing what they have been told to do. Um, I know my kid learns a whole bunch of stuff, maybe in the classroom sometimes, that they're engaged. So so th th that is something that you cannot crush, the spirit of wanting to, especially now that YouTube is around, probably one of the most fantastic tools for learning that, that could ever be because we have infinite resources there. Uh, I agree. So I've told my kids that the my kids are all in their 30s or 20s now. and um, But all growing up, I told them that I just wanted them to be curious, and they are. They're just driven to be curious about things. Um, so there's this opportunity cost to education where if you're having kids spend six hours a day on formal education, um, which is uh, coercive, um, carceral sort of setting that that really diminishes kids and diminishes learning, then that's time that they're not using for something else. So it does have a cost. So we can't crush learning like my bad experiences in public schools um, did not crush my desire to learn. Um, but there was a lot of time there that I was doing stuff that 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 seemed that I just wasn't I wasn't dancing with it. It was it was just not going to happen. And I guess this time is a finite resource, not to nerd this out, but it's like this production possibility curve, right? You could either be on one side of it or, or another. And, and, and this, I, I'm, I'm also interested in, in your idea of, of, of engagement. It's something that we always say, we want to get our kids engaged, but we don't really necessarily define what that is. Or worse, we confuse engagement with compliance. If you sit there quietly and do as you're told, you're engaged. Right, right. A good kid is a quiet kid. And that seems inherently wrong if you, what you want is a vibrant learning environment. Not that a quiet kid isn't a good kid, but using that as a definition, I mean, as an introvert in general, uh, I have to say that. But um, so I'm doing a lot of work on engagement right now. It's like in the forefront of my mind because I've been working on this idea of uh, education and assessment as a story and using storytelling as a as a way of um engaging of creating engaging learning experiences and what does storytelling tell us about the nature of engagement and because stories are um stories that last are inherently engaging otherwise they wouldn't last and um wow i really am right on the edge of my thinking right now just so you know um and and if if we're using data as data points and even bodies of evidence then we're not really telling stories or we're telling shallow stories because it's not enough just to tell a story it has to be a, a worthwhile story and in a, in a in a cool story stories have to be cool if you want them to to stick so so there has to be a story about the the institution the school the kids have to see themselves in the story they have to see why it's the right story for them to be in. 
um, it has to be their story. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, like around 2015, there was this, probably even sooner actually, there's a surge of dystopian stories like Hunger Games and Divergent, which were essentially like really, uh, I mean, they, they were great. My kids loved them. I enjoyed them. But they were like very thinly veiled metaphors for school. I mean, in Hunger Games, you have people sorted according to race and class, and you pick a few tokens out of the masses to elevate so that the rich people can sleep at night, and um, and and all, and participation is enforced by people with weapons. And um, it feels it, it, to me, it's it was it was the reason why it was speaking to kids was because it not because they worried about some hypothetical future dystopian society, but because that's what they were experiencing every day. So there was a story and their story required them as the heroes to escape or subvert the system, which is, um, which is fine. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a story. Every system could use a little bit of subverting, I think. What are the elements of a story when it comes to learning and assessment? So if we think about story from a, from a, literature point of view what are the constructs we have a hero we have a challenge we have we have a, a coming of age we have, i mean these are these are the, some of the the, the major um occurrence and stories we we have um meeting meeting a mentor we have this idea of other characters you have this idea of setting what are some of the other things that in storytelling could come into play into this story of learning there's even the the nature of a story is different from the nature of uh psychometric assessment so like if you think of the uh epitome of psychometrics it's the sat that a lot of my psychometrician friends would say that that's a stereotype but i think it's a stereotype that um is stuck in people's head um but the sat removes you from context it places you in a completely individual setting and um and it, it forces you into this, uh, you know, ten o'clock on a Saturday morning situation, and and so, and it's and it's a conversation between you and a and a piece of paper and possibly a scantron uh, in a bunker in Princeton. And um, stories, though, stories are different. Stories uh, are told by people; they're not data that's collected. Um, via tools uh, stories are told by people to other people uh, stories are told for a reason stories are not just narratives they're not just uh they're not just uh, a telling of a sequence of events uh, they're not an evaluation necessarily they're not um you, you can infer a story from a number, like a grade, but it's going to be a shallow story and it won't be um, useful. Like if, if your story is an 85, then there's hardly any story there at all. Because if you have a final grade of an 85 and you're averaging grades, um, God forbid, then your 85 could be, if there were three assessments, you got a 75, 85, 95, that's one story. Or you got an 85, 85, 85, that's another story. Or you got a 95, 85, 75, that's a third different story. And they all lead to, um, they all lead to that single number of an 85. And the reductionist impulse of 
of of modern education is is to try and make things as simple as possible. And um, not only do I think it's impossible to make learning simple, but I I don't think it's desirable. So I think that um, it's not efficient, like the stuff that I propose, the stuff that I argue about is not an efficient way of doing things, Uh, but it's the only true way. Well, it's not the only true way that was going a bit far. But it was, uh, it's, it's a true way of doing it as opposed to a reductionist way of doing it. And one of the things that we talked about before we hit record is this is close to our 50th episode. We've asked about 50 people um, in, in all different walks of life, how do you define learning? And we've had that many number of definitions. You, when this, the idea of talking about learning seldom happens in school, much less defining learning. And of course, I'm exaggerating to make my point, but it's something that, that needs to be considered. What would it take to start telling stories of learning tomorrow, today? Well, it shows up in some places. It's starting to show up. Um, <clears throat> so, like, there's this movement here in the United States to have uh, exhibitions of learning where a student curates a portfolio or a presentation of their learning for whatever period of time we're talking about. And then they tell the story of their learning. And, and right now, I mean, the ones I've seen have been fairly stilted. Um, Like, and then I, in the fifth grade, I did this thing, but it's a start. It's the kids telling their own story because like you say, um, we hardly ever have talk about a definition of learning, but we, we, really never talk about it with kids. Like if you ask the fifth grader, what do you think it means to learn something? That would be a really interesting conversation. Um, so in exhibitions, it works. I, 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 I did um, a project with the last school that I worked for as a teacher where we did senior capstones where uh, kids took it upon themselves to learn whatever they wanted they they had to develop their own project so the exhibition wasn't like what did you learn through this this structured sequence of years it's like how did you learn to do this thing and it could be something as intense as boat building or it could be um event planning somebody planned a wedding as their exhibition which um boy i wouldn't do that especially it was her sister wow that's dangerous um and so so they've been doing that for years and and each year these senior capstones happen and students uh tell the story of their learning this one thing that they were passionate about learning i mean the, so the first question in the process is to ask kids what is this what is something that you've always wanted to learn and um and so that's a start i i still i mean it's still in the end um the learning process gets reduced to a grade and a GPA, and that's that's a drag. Getting rid of that, getting rid of utilitarian, efficient stories that aren't helpful to the kids would be uh, would be a step. Now, I teach from grade four to grade twelve, with grade seven in between this year, um, and when I ask kids. And, and sometimes roundabout questions, some roundabout ways, sometimes more direct ways, but how do you know you're learning? I noticed that the grade four or five kids always say, oh, when I can do this, when I can do that, generally algorithmic math or something like that. By grade seven or eight, they know they're learning if they get good grades. 
And by grade 12, I noticed that they say, whatever, just get me through to college or, or university <laughs> or whatever it might be. <laughs> so it, there's a systemic issue here that even if we start those conversations in isolation, it won't be enough. There's, as you said, the idea of getting rid of marks, of getting rid of GPAs and, 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 and this, the extrinsic validation of grades in general to be able to, to, to change those mindsets. Right. I am... Just this morning, I had a realization. I'm, a lot of my work is around questioning assumptions. And so I just told you this story about me doing these events where we have teachers looking at their greatest learning experience. And the, the premise being that we want kids to have great learning experiences. And I realized that that's an assumption that like maybe there's a lot of the system that does not really care if kids have great learning experiences. It's like, it's nice for that 11%. Um, but really, they just want kids to learn enough. They want kids to comply and learn enough. And they don't really care about great learning experiences. And um, they don't care about joy. They don't care about uh, freedom. And um, so now that just literally came up a half an hour before you got on, on the call. So now I have to figure out what does that mean? And uh, so my, my assumptions about what we want for kids might be called into question. It isn't, so one of the problems with progressive educators, which I'm on, is that we think if we can just explain to people why we're right, that that will be enough. Like if I could just explain clearly enough or, or write, the, write the exactly right persuasive memo or something that that's enough but there but it isn't people the outcomes that the system has now aren't there because people don't know better the outcomes are there because at some point that's what people wanted and people some people still want those outcomes they still want sorting they still want kids to know their place they still want the hierarchy um they still want, you know, their own kid to thrive, no matter what happens to all the other kids, which uh, is an impulse I understand, but I don't think that as a society we can live with that. I also wonder if even progressive educators, and I use the term very loosely, uh, and yeah, me too. <laughs> if, if there's this idea, so beyond going, you know, in terms of you know the factory system and so forth, whenever they push things like communication, collaboration, critical thinking. Uh, global citizenship and all that, those are still characteristics that are going to make people successful, again, using the term fairly generally, in the workforce. Mm -hmm. Because you want a worker who collaborates, who's creative, who communicates. And, and, and really, we're just switching one for the next. It's still to prepare them to be, you know, fit into the capitalist machine. And that's what we want. And, and the only thing that we care about is making sure that our kids are employable so that they can get on that treadmill of meritocracy. Right, right. And as, as a parent of, of four kids that you do worry about what I call the failure to launch, you know, just like you do want them to be able to survive in the world that they're in. As much as you want to change, it's like this eternal tension. You need to survive within the world you're in, but you also want to change the world. And that's that's uh, that's a that's a hard balance. Um, so so I had an interesting experience. I do well. I have done a lot of work with the Department of Ed in Hawaii, 
and they have a program called Ha, which I think, um, which is absolutely worth checking out. Um, it's it's a framework around, I guess, what we would call socioeconomic, or not socioeconomic, social emotional learning, that sort of thing that is all on vogue here in uh, here in the United States. But it's it's this completely different approach. And they and it's based on native Hawaiian uh, values and pedagogy. And so I discovered it about seven years ago. I, I met with folks there. We were working on a project together. And so my project was based on this idea that we want kids to be college and career ready. And their project was based on the idea that kids should belong. And for them, belonging was defined as the relationship that can't be undone. And um, I, I don't know if I can express to you just how hard that moment hit me, like how shallow what I was offering was college and career ready. That, I mean, all I have is utility. Is that really what all that I'm bringing to the game? And um, so uh, I urge anybody to deeply dive into the HA framework. I don't want to be like, oh, I discovered Hawaii. It, it's, it's, um, it's right on the Department of Ed website in Hawaii, and everybody should go look at those videos and watch those kids. Uh, it's the most exciting thing happening in education anywhere that I know about. Um, so that was that was the beginning of this very radical change for me where where I stopped worrying so much about utility and stopped uh, worrying about efficiency so much. And um, not that I'm not aware of resources and et cetera, et cetera. I just think that they should be prioritized according to different criteria than most people, apparently. This idea of belonging naturally entails a group, some kind of multiple people. Stories involve multiple voices. The two come together that really, if, we, if we're taking this, and, and this is something that you wrote about in, in, um, in uh, Education Reimagined, the stories that we tell about learning, about assessment, which really are, are indissociable. It's just, I mean, it's the same thing, learning assessment should be mixed. It's not just about the kids telling their story, but eventually I can imagine that it's everybody contributing to that one narrative, if it's one narrative, which also brings in belonging because that there's 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 that group so so the two mixed together that belonging is the community however defined tells the story of learning as they belong i don't know i'm i'm, I'm making these connections but but it seems that the pieces fit together yeah it, it does there's an important piece that i learned from a colleague um he he was starting to question the idea that there is a single story because I don't know, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story. And, um, and, and he was starting to think of the idea that, that, that there is not a single story. And if you want a single story, that's a problem. And that rather what we have is a network of stories. So let's say talk about the story of, of a kid's learning that isn't that is actually i mean it emerges as a story but it's really the story of the teachers the story of the parents the story of everything that happened to the kid before before they got into whatever situation it is that they're that you're trying to assess and so so you have so this is so the story of a kid's learning is actually this 
the it's made up of a network of stories and then the story of that kid's learning goes into the story of the community which is made up of a network of stories and um it's just another way that i sometimes feel like i'm i'm not being helpful because i'm just making things more complicated um but it, i don't see how you can I, I see every instance where you're trying to isolate a kid like you so you have this network of stories leading to a kid's learning and then you want to do everything you can to isolate out what exactly is that kid as an as an individual and um i don't think I, I don't think it's possible to do that and i think the desire to do that is really dangerous i think i mean if alien if alienation is the disease of the 20th century, and I don't see it going away, then I think that's one of the reasons for it. This is really a, a question of documentation, because in any of our, in any parts of our daily existence, it's also, we're all networked. If, you know, our, our existence, my story is your story, and, and it's our story, and it's individualized, but we create these experiences through our interactions, through the fact that we are together and I'm interacting, of course, with my room and you with your room. And, and, and it is the stories of all these things, more than human, even in many ways, the object around us, which, which is how we are interacting with things, right? And, and how that changes our story. But the documentation of assessment and learning is where it becomes a problem. Because that's when we try to make it reductionist in order to understand it, which is creating a model, really, a simplified model. But we think that that's going to tell everything. That score on your SAT is going to tell you everything you need to about the kid without realizing that model is just imperfect by nature. Right. It's another story. I mean, it's a very, for some reason, very compelling story, but it's, 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 it's an empty story. I mean, I remember when I switched to doing with, with kids when I was teaching uh, ninth graders, when I, I switched from giving grades to giving just feedback and the flood of people asking me, but what's my real grade was amazing. And me suggesting then to them that grades have no more reality than anything else was not a helpful way to approach that conversation. Because there were how many years of being told that that was all that they were worth. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And uh, the documentation is, it's like the, the myth of the permanent record. It's like, the the I, I don't think it's ever happened in real life, but uh, this idea that ah this is going on your permanent record, and then suddenly you'll be like eighty years old and discover that you made fun of a girl when she was eight years old, and it'll be held against you. Of course, it's this idea of the difficulty of implementation. Okay, so let, let's actually rewind. It's people are saying, oh gosh, this this just sounds really complicated and complex, but it's also a question of what is the purpose of these stories? Who's going to read them and for what reason? Even if we told a story, the most beautiful story, what is the purpose? Is it still for university admissions, which is sorting and ranking? Is it still to get a job? Is it just to have one's life work or a, a, a biography or something like that? What is the purpose even of documenting learning and assessment? That is a wonderful question. Uh, which is a way of me dodging it. Um, it's hard. I, I do think we need there. There are two. There are two lines of work that I do 
I mean, there are more than two, but two of the lines of work that I do are assessment and credentialing. I work in credentialing as well sometimes, not that often, but it's, credentialing is literally the determining whether or not you know enough. And uh, I think that's really a useful and valid thing to do, especially in a professional setting. Um, unfortunately, it's just that that's become all of what assessment became in the traditional system. The, the traditional system is entirely, it's 13 years of assessments deciding whether or not you know enough and doing it in a way that's efficient for the data miners, but not efficient for the kids. Like if you, if you take the SATs in October or, or the state tests in October, and then you get results back in April, how are you going to act on that information? Um, so, so I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to credentialing, but I do think that, um, the purpose of the stories is to drive the learning and vice versa and to drive the living, living and learning. And this is where it starts to sound like I'm a preacher, which is not, it's not true. I'm not actually a preacher, but I can get why it would sound that way because we are talking about values and ethics and how to be a good person and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think later on when kids have choice in the matter, they can, uh, then choose what they wish to be credentialed in. There, there are points where you can you can decide. Well, look, I want to be a teacher, and there, there's there are uh, exams for that. Or I want to be a nurse. My wife is a nurse, or something like that. And you could do the proper credentialing experience for that. Um, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure what the purpose is of, be, of meticulously counting up that you have enough units of learning in the liberal arts. Um, it's it's uh, it's a question I'm still wrestling with. But I suppose you you kind of hinted at this about um, how one feels like to take make those choices, and and the shift might be rather than having the documentation be for somebody else. Maybe those stories are just for oneself as well and, and building up metacognition and decisions and choices and so forth. So actually, we're telling the stories of our own lives rather than presenting it to somebody else who will never really understand the story anyway because they're not in it and they have their own story. Right. And, and it's interesting, the word choice is interesting because even uh, kids make choices during their experiences, but you also always make a choice when you tell a story. It's, it's a curation and you choose what to include, and you choose what kind of story it is. Like, is your story of learning, uh, is it a romance? Is it a coming of age story? Um, is it, uh, I don't know what, like, I'm sorry, the word's just not coming to me. Um, right, so is it a murder mystery or a comedy? There are all sorts of things that a story can be, um, uh, the hero's journey is, uh, pretty tedious now, but it's, it's still evoked a lot. Um, and so those are choices that you make. What kind of story is this? And so for different audiences, you're going to tell a different story. So if you're, if you're doing an exhibition of your general learning through, uh, high school, you're going to tell a different story than if you're presenting, if you're, then if you're telling your story to, uh, the guy who owns the mechanic shop who you want to persuade that you 
um, that you know about mechanics because stories are also acts of persuasion. They're not neutral. They have a point. Um, even if there's not, even if there's not an explicit moral to a story and there's usually not, there's always a reason why the story is being told. Um, there's always something that a story is trying to do. Uh, and, um, so who, who will hear these stories? I mean, it's, it's almost, it depends on who the teller of the story wants to hear them. Uh, I think of, um, I think of, uh, I worked with, uh, uh, the guy who did assessments. Oh my gosh, his name escapes me. He did assessments for the Hawaiian language immersion program at the department of ed in Hawaii. And this is just one of the things I was doing there, but he bet he wanted to base his assessments on, uh, hula, hula assessments where you have a community of hula instructors and, in the in the folks they learn and then they get up in front of the community and they do they do an exhibition of dance and but also tell their story and so that's that's a choice that they're making right there what that audience demands a particular kind of story and um i also love the analogy i love the analogy of dance there because uh when i think of the complexity of of what I talk about sometimes it's only complex if you're trying to get every particle under control. And um, I mean, choreography is amazingly complex, but, but it's also amazingly fluid and intuitive. And um, I think those are some of its superior traits and that if education could be more intuitive and fluid, that we would be uh, better human beings. And the question that people ask is, if it's fluid and intuitive, how do we know? How could we be sure? And how could we be fair? Because then we will be um, subject to subjectivity. And how do I know? How could we be fair? Mm. So I, two responses to that. One is that we're already subjected to subjectivity. It's just in a different spot of the process. It's not in the giving of the tests or the process of the tests, although it is, because in order to get to a testing center on a Saturday morning implies a certain amount of mobility. And um, But the subjectivity is in the design of the tests. And the <clears throat> so the idea that the current system is is objective is is ridiculous um i mean there's this there's a difference between being precise and being accurate because like you can be wrong down to four decimal points um and it's that's like a very precise way to be wrong so and then the other answer i have to that is is uh transparency i think it, i think one way to ensure fairness is to require sort of a, a radical level of transparency in all that you do. I think this is like great classroom strategy too. let kids know all the time. This is why we're doing this. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing this. This is what I need. This is what I as a human being need to know right now about what you know. So this is what I'm trying to get. And uh, I think this radical level of transparency sort of uh, it means that even though you can never be objective, at least it protects against bias. 
and um, it brings kids into this into the conspiracy of their own learning. You're like you're letting them in on the secret. You're you're uh, um, they're getting away with something because they're getting this professional knowledge. And look, this is really what I need from you, and um, this is why I personally need it. My personal need. It's not some objective need from the universe that needs to know that you need to know how to do this geometry. Um, somebody made a decision that you need to know this geometry. And now I'm driven by that decision to see that you need to know this geometry. And um, kids can react to that in different ways. Uh, I, I, have, I have had kids when I was teaching, I have had kids say, please, Mr. Chapin, just give me the zero and stop talking to me. And um, at the time it was shocking, but right now it feels like a completely valid response. Why would, why would you want to endure a diminishing personal exchange if you don't have to? It seems completely legitimate to me to opt out of that. And this goes back to this YouTube idea. Why would I learn from you when I could go find out on YouTube the same thing, well, in terms of idea, in a curated way with maybe some professionals, different voices, a whole different experience. I don't need to listen to you. Mm -hmm. If you're not, especially if you're not trying to make it worth my while. Um, I think, I think that uh, in learning at uh, relationships are really everything. It's like, they almost are the point. They really are. And, um, and so that's why, so you're not going to get a sense of belonging from YouTube. Uh, but if you can, if you can delegate those areas that don't require, uh, and I'm about to say something generalized that I don't know if it stands up. Um, if you can delegate to YouTube the things that, that you can, then you have more space and time for the building of relationships. And with better relationships, uh, the things that we actually worry about as human beings in our society, I mean, none of, none of the problems that our society is undergoing right now is, are because we don't know enough about geometry. I mean, not that I have anything against geometry. I enjoy geometry. Um, but, you know, if we have a nuclear war, as Neil Postman said, if we have a nuclear war, it's not going to be, be because we don't know enough about nuclear war. It'll be because because the relationships uh, and the failures there. Um, so. Uh, OK, so there I did. I said the general thing and I think it holds up. I think it holds up. I think it holds up. And, and, you know, again, we're working with these generalities anyway, which doesn't mean that, that they hold for, for everything and, 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 and are the truth. Um, and, and I guess the question is, working with these relationships, everybody talks about relationships. Everybody says it's important, even socio-emotional learning. I still go back to these competencies being very individualistic, being creative, being critical thinker. Um, even being collaborative is individual because it means that you're able to work with somebody else. It doesn't mean that you can necessarily create together. Um, what would it take for schools to be based on relationships rather than content and knowledge? What would it take for that to come first and foremost, not just in marketing brochures or, or lip service, but to have the values of, of not just 
a school, but a community be based around these relationships? I'm not entirely sure. I have a, I'm the last few years and our, our education's reaction to the pandemic has left me possibly more cynical than I want to be. Um, I think the, the incentives and the money, uh, the people who provide incentives to the institutions uh, really, really drive what is required, but not what is best. Like the, in the United States, the federal government gives about 8%, 8% of the money in schools in the United States is given by the federal government. And that's, that's like this magic number where it's, <clears throat> it's not a lot, but it's just enough not to be able to say no to. It's really quite genius. And, um, and so in order not to say no to these, mon- to these, to these, uh, to this money, we maintain this hierarchical system. Schools are very hierarchical uh, by by their nature now, and um, I think that uh, I'm I'm wandering a little bit, but I, I think that changing that system of of incentives would be useful. Um, but there's also this this idea, even even though I talk about relationships being primary. A lot of people talk about relationships, but it's almost always in terms of relationships need to be primary so they can do learning. <clears throat> and um, when I talk to when I talk to the folks who decided that belonging should be the primary quality of education, they weren't talking about belonging so that they can then learn. They were talking about belonging as belonging being the most important value. And um, so what I've been doing is I've been uh, examining metaphors, I think changing our metaphor for school, even beyond the um, Ken, uh, Sir Ken Robinson's uh, doing away with the factory model, which was great. Yes, absolutely do away with the factory model. But I'm also not fond of the garden metaphor either. The garden metaphor is pretty problematic. A garden is a desert for anything except for the single plant that you want to grow. Um, so, and, and also the garden is like almost proves the limitations, but people ignore what the garden tells you about the limitations of coercion. Like you can't, uh, I actually created a t-shirt about this. Uh, you can't force asparagus to grow. You can't yell at asparagus and say, grow harder. <clears throat> And so you're just being lazy or you can't keep measuring it and hope and hoping that the measurement will make it grow. The asparagus always has a say in whether or not it grows or not. And um, not only does it, but it should. So, so that's just an extended metaphor for me. Like kids always have a say. You cannot make a kid learn and you shouldn't be able to make a kid learn. It's It would be awful if that were true. Uh, the kids always have a say, and they always should have a say uh, in what they do. I feel like I've really drifted from your point, from your question. No, it's interesting because John Watkins, who was on the podcast not so long ago, talks about rewilding learning, not no, no garden, but just, just rewilding it. Um, with a true biodiversity that that is the wild and letting it just go, uh, which is also different from from a replanting, uh, reforesting. It's rewilding. 
Um, so that's that's um, uh, quite 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 a connection. And and I guess the the one of my my last questions for you is is about what you mentioned about the pandemic and how it made you more cynical. A year ago, eighteen months ago, everybody was saying, "Oh, the new normal is going to be so different. We're never going to go back to the same." But we did. Same as before. So, so what what happened to that optimism, and how did it maybe swing the other way to more cynicism? Uh, I have a lot of opinions about politics. I'm not an expert, but I think a couple of things that um, went on. Uh, I think the the. I think the lore of money is is real and genuine, and it's not good. But I think it's real, and uh, I have applied for grants that I only realized I needed once I discovered that there was money available. You know, I've done that, and um, so so I think the 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 federal government and the state governments are setting are setting policy through through money, if not through actual policy. The other thing is that teachers are so tired. And it's it's almost like saying the tropics are beautiful. It's so obvious. Um, teachers are so tired that how how can we expect them to stand up, um, sort of as warriors against the against the system, proposing that they go back to a normal that they they never loved? Um, I work with a, a lot of teachers, uh, even during the pandemic. I, I kept, even though it was virtual most of the time. And uh, most of the sessions in the first or first half of the second year of the pandemic were almost like therapy. Uh, they were just so pleased to like have the opportunity to think about something other than whatever attendance problem they had. They were just exhausted. And um, <clears throat> And so like one person said, this is just like therapy and boy, did we need therapy. Um, so I, I think that uh, if you're trying to, if you're trying to, to raise energy to make a change, there's not much energy there. Uh, and then the other thing, which I think uh, progressive educators forget is that there are a lot of people who want it to be the way it is. Um, I look at what's happening in, in New Hampshire or in other states where, uh, where, they, where the stated goal really is to undo public education. Um, I mean, I, I, I have a lifelong complicated relationship with public education, but I love the public education project. It's the center of my experience in life. And um, and they and they really want to end public schools. And when you say that, you know, hey, they want to end public schools, they'll they'll say, no, 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 that's not true. You're you're overseeing it, or you know, you're always exaggerating, and you get this gaslighting nonsense. Um, my point, and I do have one. My point is that there are people who like it the way it is, and they have power too. And it's not just because they don't know better; it's because they like it the way it is. And um, the status quo is really good at maintaining itself. There's like not, there's no such thing as an idea that can't be subverted by the status quo. 
it, you saw it with standards, you see it with competencies, you see it with performance assessment, when performance assessments, well, I'll put it in quotes, uh, get folded into standardized tests. I mean, what the heck is that? That's insane. Um, so there's, there's uh, social emotional learning. Uh, all of these things are good ideas that eventually the status quo subverts in order to, to undo dissent. I'll ask you one last question, which is a little bit the et cetera section, um, which is what's on your mind? What are things that are coming up for you? Uh, what are things that you hope uh, for the now, for the future? It's a little bit, uh, again, just, just space for you to, to wax. What's on your mind? I'm doing uh, a lot of work now, which is at such a fundamental level, like questioning the very assumptions or questioning the metaphors that underlie our assumptions of education. And I'm being invited to good places to do it. Like I spoke to the uh, uh, teachers union in Los Angeles uh, in December and they were super excited by what I was saying. It was very nice. It was very affirming. Um, but I really wonder what, what's on my mind is like, can this happen in public education in our country? Can we really have this shift to this place um, where, where we want every kid to belong when half the country, it feels like, is spending every waking moment trying to figure out who doesn't belong. Um, I'm really uh, discouraged, honestly, um, by it. And so that's what, so that's what's on my mind. Uh, it's really, uh, is this, this is like awful if I'm trying to get people to like pay attention to me, but it's like, <laughs> Uh, is it possible or do I have to start a school? You know, it's like a lot of people in my position end up starting a school and I don't really want to start a school. Um, I run my own business and I don't even like running my own business. Why would I want to start a school? But is that what's going to have to happen for me to, to really live the ideals that I have? Um, it's really, uh, I feel like we're at this, this point where something is going to shift and I have no idea uh where it's going to go and i'm trying to figure out my place in it and to influence it as much as i can um it's like being on a dance floor where originally it was a swing band but then it starts to become bebop and then it starts to become avant-garde jazz and and at some point order must be restored but you have no idea what it's going to look like that was um an extended metaphor that i just made up but I, I guess, you know, it, so many times we try to end on a message of hope and goodwill and, and so forth. But, you know, sometimes we have to face the reality that we just don't know what lies ahead. And we never know what lies ahead I mean, with all the, the good hope in the world. Right. I mean, I feel like, uh, oh, this is, this is self-aggrandizing, but I feel like one of the Hebrew prophets who nobody wanted to listen to or people got really angry at. Um, you know, except for my circle of folks, uh, I feel like I'm really pushing people and um, people don't necessarily like to be pushed. How do people get a hold of you if you want them to get a hold of you? I'm associated with an organization called Educating for Good, 
we're we're friends so you can if you go to www.educatingforgood uh there's connection information for me um also i do a lot of work with the next generation learning challenge uh you can get me through there uh you can put my email wherever you want it uh i don't know what i don't know what your front materials look like um but you can do that it's and i've written a book called uh, 126 falsehoods we believe about education which is a very entertaining book and uh if you look it up uh, uh you can get it pretty much anywhere you get other books listen thank you Gary. i really appreciate your time sure i appreciate you asking me it really was uh, a blast this has been the coconut thinking podcast i'm your host benjamin freud check out our website www.coconut-thinking.design that's www.coconut-thinking.design and we are in partnership with intrepid Ed news www.intrepidnews.com look us up on linkedin send us a message we always love to hear your thoughts looking forward to hearing from you soon in the meantime enjoy the summer we will be back shortly with another episode of the coconut thinking podcast Talk to you soon. Bye.